Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. In today's episode, we are bringing you part two of my conversation with Matt Manzer, the product manager of Atomic Ski Boots. If you haven't already listened to part one, you should do that first because it is definitely relevant to this episode's discussion about the flex patterns of ski boots. And if you have already listened to part one, I think that you are really going to enjoy part two. Here, Matt and I talk about the very messy world of flex ratings, why this world is such a mess, and why this mess probably isn't going to get cleaned up anytime soon. Matt and I also discuss progressive versus linear flex patterns and the sometimes kind of shady seeming differences between a brand's 110 and 120 rated boot or their 120 and 130. We also talk about how Atomic arrives at their own flex ratings. We go into issues of weight and damping, and we touch on the next areas of innovation that Atomic is focused on. This is another good conversation, but as you'll hear us say, our work here is not yet done. So Matt and I are going to be doing a part three. I'd like to invite you to submit some other questions you might have, and we'll address some of those in our next conversation. You can leave those questions in the show notes to this episode on the website, or you can email me at jonathan.ellsworth at blisterreview.com and just mark the subject heading of the email gear 30 ski boot questions part three or something like that i have a very full inbox so if you get it in that subject heading you are far more likely to actually get your question on the air another thing if you are enjoying these discussions about materials and plastics and the like then you have to go check out our latest episode of our new bike podcast called Bikes and Big Ideas. I was just in Denver earlier this week sitting down with the founders, chief engineer, and director of composites at Gorilla Gravity. And while their name might sound like they are some garage band, these guys are working on some cutting-edge stuff in the world of materials and manufacturing, and they are the only bike manufacturers using what I am now calling Carbon 2.0. It is super interesting and a pretty big development And you can hear all about it on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast that you can find on the Blister website or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you are digging all of this gear nerdery that we are bringing you, please go leave us a nice rating or review or some feedback in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, because those nice ratings and reviews are like those power pellets in Pac-Man. They energize us and make us light up and move real fast and eat ghosts, and they just really keep us going. So please leave us that rating or review, and if we see any of your reviews mentioning Pac-Man or power pellets or eating ghosts, that's going to just make me real happy, to be honest. And now, it's time once again to jump back down the rabbit hole and get a whole lot clearer about the funny-looking plastic shoes that we all wear to go skiing. Okay, so we just did a pretty significant deep dive on materials and specifically different types of plastics. You've talked about how these different plastics have different feel or feels, as you like to say. This, I think, is a nice way to get into the conversation about flex patterns and different terms and technology that we've started using more around blister and 
you know, like talking about suspension, the suspension of a boot, or that traditionally there are concepts of like a progressive flex or a more linear flex. So this is an episode about flex and flex patterns and terminologies around that. And, and all uh, the feels. And all the feels. Again, um, <laughs> who knew that a super nerd conversation about plastics would really be about all the feels? Just uh, about the feelings. It's the just the about the feelings. So anyway, the floor is yours. Where do you want to go and get us started with this conversation about flex patterns? Sure. So how a boot flexes is kind of a an equation that revolves around the plastics we just talked about the wall thickness, like how thick the actual plastic is in the shell or in the cuff, and the hardness of that material. All those three things will kind of point to how a boot flexes or feels. And since we just talked about the the plastic angle and depth, and we said some plastics have a more linear feel, a more progressive feel, Maybe we just kind of define those terms so we have a good starting point. A, a progressive flex in ski boots is really similar to, if anybody's a mountain biker, a progressive flex on the, their suspension on a full suspension mountain bike. So that means it starts off pretty soft at the initial part of the flex, and as you flex the boot deeper into its travel, it becomes progressively stiffer. So what this means when you're skiing is you've got a really kind of off the, it's softer off the top, like in the first few degrees of flexing forward. And then as you really get deeper and move your knee forward into the turn, it's going to get, it's going to ramp up and get stiffer. And this is what we call progressive flex. Sometimes that progressive flex is minimal it's almost linear. So a linear flex would be one that from the beginning of the the flex range to the end of the flex range doesn't change a whole lot. So it feels like the boot, you just move forward. It's not getting stiffer the way you would expect it to. Um, this is what's called a linear flex. This is something we at Atomic, we, we tend not to like. We are big fans of progressive flexes. Um, because linear flexes, you lose a lot of energy to the ski. It's not going to the ski. It's just your body weight's moving forward. And that energy isn't getting transmitted down into the ski very efficiently. So a linear flex tends to make you, the skier, work harder for the same turn. Whereas a progressive flex, the more you flex it, the more you're going to get back in terms of feeling but also energy down to the ski. So progressive flex is softer up the top and it gets stiffer the more you flex into the boot. A linear flex does not do that. It is kind of more or less constant, if you wanted to think of it that way, from beginning to end. I think a truly linear ski boot doesn't exist. There's always going to be some progression or progressivity to the flex pattern of the boot in, in the most minimal way. So it can't really be truly linear. Um, but we could characterize some boots as linear. And 
these tend to be always in, or not always, but if you picked up like a, a super cheap hundred dollar, hundred euro ski boot and put it on, I bet you a lot of money that it's going to have a linear feel to it. I mean, isn't it also a thing though, that if you pick up a super cheap, super cheap ski boot, maybe a super cheap rental boot, you might kind of feel like you're hitting a wall right at the top of the flex pattern and then actually blowing through it sort of to nothingness, right? I mean... Yeah, that could happen too. Yep. Like, I guess I'm saying that just so we don't think that it's like either a linear or a progressive. What do you call that other than like terrible? Do we have a name? Yeah, that's bad. Do we have a name? That's just, just bad. bad. Yeah. Bad feels. Bad feels. Okay. Yeah. I've definitely felt that on some ski boots. Um, nothing's jumping to mind, to be honest. Um, but when that happens, I would say it's more, it's part of the design of the boot versus what material it's made out of. Because if something off the top is really stiff and then it just buckles or folds in midway through its travel, to me, that sounds like a design flaw in in the boot, to be honest. This has actually come up for me in conversations with shop folks. So boot fitters, et cetera, have talked about in super cheap rental boots that sometimes it's like, yeah, those boots don't flex at all or have this kind of like, yeah, there's, they're kind of firm at the top and then just completely blow out. Like one example that I could think, like a scenario at least where that could happen is if you had a a high volume adult boot, like a 102 lasted something, so really high volume. Whenever you have a high volume boot and a skinny foot, so the foot is not filling up the boot at all. So the tube, like the shell, could flex more. And the more leverage you generate when you flex forward, the boot's not flexing appropriately because the foot's not filling up the lower shell it'll flex, flex, and then just fold. So, and that could for sure happen in rental because so many rental boots are just wide, high volume boots. Um, so that, that could be a scenario where that could happen often. So when you guys are having internal boot engineer dork conversations, are you guys internally using these terms of progressive and linear I guess I'm trying to explore like how sophisticated or unsophisticated say we are if I'm on the consumer end of things versus the way that engineer boot engineers are talking about these products and concepts. We definitely talk about progressive flex and linear flex at Atomic. So those 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 are exactly the terms that we would use. And We'll get to it in a little bit here, but when you actually plot the flex pattern of a boot, it it is a progressive or linear line that is created. And whether it it you know, you could take like a a review off pink bike of a full suspension bike or a a robot test that we would do, and if you just looked at the charts, you couldn't tell if it was a ski boot or a a rear shock being tested kind of thing. The lines look identical, like progressive, you know, or linear to that, to that effect. So you're not wrong for using those words. 
at least if you've hung out atomic <laughs> you'd be you'd be welcome okay. to use those cool. too cool good to know uh, <laughs> if i if i ever make it there you know i want to make sure i don't start using the wrong words right off the bat and they're just everybody walks to the other side of the room yeah this will just ignore you then <laughs> yeah yeah um so we just kind of talked about progressive versus linear so how do we get to those progressive versus linear flex patterns and we will get there by selecting certain materials engineering the plastic wall thickness in a certain way and playing with both of those uh, those two elements sometimes we have to go to a harder material sometimes we have to go to a softer material sometimes we have to remove wall thickness from a mold or add wall thickness to a mold to get the behavior the way we want it to be. Um, so there's a lot of kind of trial and error to get to a 130, for example. And just saying 130 is already going to open a can of worms because what does that mean? And this is something I think two, probably I think two or three years ago, I started to dig a little bit deeper into like, where did this number come from and where does it relate to? Because I started boot fitting in about 2002 and there were already some brands using this kind of three digit label at the top end, but most brands weren't. If, you, if anybody remembers back in the day of like, I don't know, if you look at Atomic Boots, we had the SX-14. So we had a two-digit number system. Um, as you went higher, the boot got stiffer. As you went lower, the boot got softer. And I think that was, that started in like the early to mid-90s at Atomic. There was a 1 to 10 kind of scale rating. So 1 was soft, 10 was the stiffest thing we produced. And eventually there became a need for 11, you know, you got to go spinal tap on it and it goes to 11 and eventually it go, it went to 14. And at the very least, these, these numbers didn't mean anything other than it just indicated to you that it was getting stiffer and more expensive. You know, it, it was at least a barometer of showing you a hierarchy of some sort. And these numbers eventually morphed into a three-digit setup eventually. And they don't relate to Newton meters. They don't relate to angles. I don't know really where it came from. I want to say it came from Lang. And I don't want to get Tor mad at me here. But it'll, it'll probably be historically around the time of the early 2000s when you started to see brands move from a two-digit system to a three-digit system at the top end of their range. And some brands were very late making this change. I remember Solomon had the X-Wave series up till 10 or 12, and they had the Impact series up till 12 or 14. This is like late 2000s, mid 2000s. Um, before they also went to 130, 120, 110 type setup. But now everybody is on this for the most part. It's become a 
a completely standardized thing within the industry, but doesn't relate to any quantifiable thing. And it's for sure not standardized across the industry. And this is a completely frustrating thing um, for everybody involved. And at the, at the very minimal, at least this flex index tells you that boots are getting stiffer and they're getting more expensive. <laughs> Wait a second. As they go up. Oh, as they go up. Okay. <laughs> as they go up. Yeah, as they go down, they're getting softer and usually cheaper. That's at least the truth that I've discovered <laughs> with this. Um, but whether you have a 70 flex or a 130 or 100, that number is not directly related to a force or a function um, in physics, for example. It's just, a, it's just a hierarchy that has come to be and it exists, and to get it to change is going to take something like an act of God, I think, to get it. <laughs> if, if you think boot soles are confusing, try getting everybody to align on flexes next. That'll be uh, the next impossible challenge. Okay, cool. So we have <laughs> a flex index system that sort of in some ways means nothing. So at Atomic, how do you guys internally get to calling something a 120 or a 130 or a 100? How, how do you guys think about this or, or work around this? So like we just said, there's no standard. There's no DIN standard, for example, on, on Flex. So what does this all mean? Well, there is something to it. You know, you hear everybody talking about, well, that's not a real 130 you know, implying that there is a real 130, you know? So what, what is that? What is the benchmark? What is the, the baseline that you're gauging this off of? And to be honest there, the only way to do it is if you take it seriously, you go out, like for example, like when we make the, um, the Hawks Ultra 130, we're like, well, how stiff should this boot be? What can we do? What, what's possible? Well, first we have to find out where is everybody else? What's our baseline for gauging? Are we even close to a 130? Are we too stiff? So we go out and we literally buy all the relevant competitors. This is used for fit tests. This is used for on-snow performance tests and also flex tests. So we get everybody's low volume 98 millimeter boots for example line them up put them on and we just start flexing them and this is kind of mimicking what the end consumer would feel in a store for example you're going to do the same thing try a boot on carpet test it room temperature how does it feel and if you lined up all the boots you would get a spectrum some are going to be softer than others some are going to be stiffer. And we at Atomic try to shoot for the middle, to be honest. Um, we don't want to be the stiffest boot on the wall. We also, given our performance heritage, we don't want to be the softest either. And we think shooting for the middle ground of the, cons uh, the competitor landscape is the baseline that we do for all of our boots. 
So from 70 flex up to 130, we're going to benchmark as much as we can to the competitor landscape and just see where the chips fall. And while there is no standardized flex across the industry, we at Atomic try to make our range as consistent as possible. So that means when you line up the 130s or the 100s or the 80s, it's really, really close from, from fit to fit, from category to category. And we do this based on what the competitors feel like. And then we take those competitors from the in-store kind of scenario. Then we go ski them all once there's snow. And we see how they stack up when they're cold in an actual skiing experience um, and make notes of what's stiffer, what's softer. Is it the same as we experienced at room temperature? And then, because there's a lot of human interpretation here of what feels softer to me, doesn't necessarily feel that same softness to you, Jonathan, or to our head ski tester, our main ski tester at Atomic. He'll have a different opinion sometimes. So we will take all these boots and we hook them up to a custom robot that we had made um, that will essentially measure and plot the flex curve of whatever boot you put onto it. And this is how you get rid of the kind of human interpretation of how the boot feels. Every boot goes through the same robotic test. It kind of measures from natural forward lean of the boot to about 30 degrees forward past that. I forget the actual number. Um, but essentially, we flex it in its usable, skiable range. And we see how many or how much newton meter force it takes to get through that range. And when you do that, it will plot a flex curve. And so we will see the newton meter value at every degree, like how much it takes to get through the flex, usable flex range of any ski boot we want. So we can see which competitors, you know, are way softer than 130 than they claim to be. And everybody knows this problem. Um, we will also see competitors that are definitely stiffer. And we're like, well, I don't know if we want to go that stiff because now it's just super hard to put the boot on. And we don't want to hear people complaining about that as much as they tend to on the other side of the spectrum. And so we'll, we'll literally, we'll have all these boots tested at a in-store scenario. We'll take them on snow, we'll ski them. We will put them into the robot and do it not only at room temperature, but we'll freeze all the boots to minus 20 and then do the same robot test at minus 20 and just see how things compare at room temp to minus 20 on the robot. And so we have just oodles of data. That's a technical term. Yeah. Uh, we can get all the feels, all the robot feels <laughs> to tell us, you know, really, how does this boot compare to our competitors? How does our range internally compare to ourselves? You know, how do things line up? How close is it? So we can, we really learn a lot by doing these three tests. And again, doesn't get us to an ultimate perfection, but what we like to think at Atomic is that even though there's no standardized measurement for flex, we like to think that we could be, 
because we've done so much homework on all these three aspects of how a boot flexes in these three different scenarios and try to be as consistent as possible within our own range as much as we can. So we tend to start at the 130. So if we're going to start somewhere, we tend to start with a boot we want to ski. <laughs> okay. So we'll start with the Snob. one. Snob. You know? And, uh, but it, at least it's a baseline. And if, if we go from 130, uh, we can just down spec from there. It, it's pretty, it's not, it's not rocket science, but it is. Now we're going to be talking about doing like blends of plastics. Not different plastics, but different hardnesses to arrive at, you know, from 130, if we just say this is, let's just call it 100% hard material of a certain hardness is is 100% of this certain Desmopan, for example. The 120 could be 90% of that 100, that same hardness, but 10% of something softer. And so you blend these plastics together to arrive at the hardness that you uh, hope to arrive at. And sometimes it's 90-10, 80-20, you know? Like, we, we definitely geek out on these percentages to make sure when you do go from 100 to 110 to 120 to 130, you do feel the changes going up. Those numbers don't mean anything in terms of newton meter force or something like that again, but, you know, to go from 100 to 110 it's it, that should feel 10% stiffer. And so we look at it that way as well. Yep. And I can sure say, I mean, I've definitely tested boots from other companies where I've been in the 120 and their 130. This, this has happened a handful of times. And yeah, sometimes the conclusion is these boots feel very similar in their flex profile. And then sometimes you're like, wow, that is really a pretty eye-popping difference. Interesting to hear how you're talking about this and then some of my own experience in getting in a number of these 120s and 130s, for example. You know, sometimes it's, it's helpful to ask. Sometimes the shop might not know this because it's just such a crazy deep dive. But between 120 and 130, sometimes the brands have exactly the same plastic. What's changing is a liner and or a power strap or something because it's not just 120 to 130 doesn't always mean flex. Again, it's a made up number, but there is a hierarchy that's still there. A 120 and a 130 are on different price points within the same family. So some brands would do a 120 is the same hardness as a 130, but it's a, a down spec liner or it's a down spec power strap or something um, to hit the price point that the boot lives on. So sometimes brands play just the hierarchy game. Sometimes it's always a different flex when the, when the number changes. That's what we do, um, at least. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes you're going to get a different plastic hardness and a liner change. It just kind of depends who you're talking about brand-wise. Okay, so sometimes a 120 and a 130 are more similar or different than their names might suggest. Now let's talk a little bit about adjusting the hardness of a shell, which I think takes us into a question sort of about blending. Totally. This is really, this happens throughout our entire range, 
But where we make it more obvious is in race. And if anybody looks at our World Cup boot range, we have a, a Redster 170 flex boot, for example. And we have a 170, a 150, and a 130. And the 170, and this, this should be online, we should call it out this way because a lot of the race shops like to, to use it. We have the listed numbered flex, 170, but there's also a alphabetical system next to it, HI slash B. What does that mean? To arrive at the lower shell stiffness for a 170, it is a 50% mixture of H material. It's a code name we have for the material is H and a 50% mixture of I material. I is stiffer than H in this scenario. So when you see Redster 170 HI slash B, that means the shell is a mixture of H and I material, 50-50, and the cuff is 100% B material from a hardness. Now, behind these letters is a specific code of Desmopan or something that goes really down the rabbit hole. But we give this code just so the our race department um, can easily communicate to our R&D team what hardness they want to see. So 170 is HIB, 150 is HA, and 130 is AA. So it's a little confusing, but it kind of shows when you go from 150 to 170, the shell is getting stiffer and the cuff is getting stiffer. But we're, we're going to be blending different hardnesses of the same family together to arrive at that desired stiffness. So every atomic boot that is listed as a 130 boot, that's AA, every uh, single that, one that, That's Redster. That's what we'll talk about there. Okay. Yeah. Oh, God. You've got another system when we go to Hawks versus other No, boots? we don't. We tend not to have that lettering system there. Just because it's, th this came really from the race department when athletes are like, I feel this plastic is behaving in a certain way. What is it? Instead of giving them the super crazy long number of Desmopan, we call it H or A internally within our own organization. And this lets the race department just kind of label boots. So if you ever get a chance to look at some World Cup athletes' boots, there'll be a, mar a handwritten marker on the shell, H or HI, or the cuff will be A or B, for example. But you got to get close enough to read it, and most people don't get that close to the racer's boots. <laughs> yeah. Next time I see Marcel, be like, you hey, what's up, Marcel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so flexes um, come down to material hardness and what kind of mixtures, what kind of blends we're using of different different hardnesses, and also in conjunction to how thick the plastic is, ultimately. A Redster boot is much thicker than a Hawks Ultra. And so to arrive at the 130 designation, 
we have to use in Hawks Ultra a way stiffer plastic to get to the same quote-unquote 130 that we would use in Redster. Like, if I had to just give a quick analogy for people to understand, um, if we put, because Redster is so thick, if I put standard 110 material into Redster, it's going to feel like a 130 because it's just so substantial, it's so thick. Whereas I would have to put 170 material into Hawks Ultra to get to feel like a 130 because Ultra is so much thinner. That's not exactly what we do, but that general concept is, is that. So the Hawks Ultra came out, what, two or three seasons ago? Onto the, like for sale to, the, to consumers. Three? Yeah, pretty sure it was the 16, 17 ski season. Well, just so you know why I'm a little confused on when it came out, because I'm currently doing 21, 22. So I have to kind of think back, for me, five, six years. <laughs> right. It's kind of nuts. And yeah, I mean, if anybody's like, why are these guys talking about ski boots in June? I <laughs> guess we, we haven't totally addressed that. But this uh, is, yeah. Yeah. So we're talking ski boots in June because this is the type of time of the year when we're almost at our busiest. The busiest time of the year for me is like April, May is just insanity because I'm, I'm finishing the collection we just launched at ISPO SIA. I'm about waist deep into the year after and I'm drawing out ideas and concepts with my team about two years after that. So there's like three collections going on at once. And in June, we just essentially cemented the 2021 collection already. <laughs> are, are all the boots transparent? Everything's transparent, don't worry. Sick, sick. By the way, I think in our conversation from a year and a half ago, we spent somehow quite a bit of time talking about popular colorways what was it with Japan? J Japan really liked, was blue. it blue? They're yeah. all about the blue. They're still all about the blue? Yeah, 100%. Okay, sick. You, you keep being you, Japan. Yeah. And uh, China, for example, we're learning more about the Chinese market. They're also looking to develop the, their ski market because of the Winter Olympics coming up. Red, red is the money color in China. So that's Atomic's brand color. Booyah. That's going to be cool. Okay. Japan, still blue. China, red. Me, transparent. <laughs> Somebody out there. I actually, I think we talked about this. I'm, I'm kind of a white, white ski boot steez you would do. You would like Russia then. Russia's all about the white ski boots too. Sick. Good yep. job, Russians. <laughs> Stop interfering in our elections, but <laughs> props on the ski boot colorway taste. Anyway, moving on, <laughs> I think. Hopefully. <laughs> we, could, we could turn this into some very weird but interesting like political commentary. Political some, diatribe on. Yeah, I don't know, on everything. Elections yeah. and colors. <laughs> there you go. But let's not do that. Um so back to this question of 
flex numbers and a flex index system that's kind of not tethered to anything. Do you hold out either the hope or the belief that we will ever get to kind of a a truly universally used or accepted flex index system? It's hard okay. to even say for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm usually a very optimistic person and full of hope, but this is this is a conversation that's just full of despair. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, it's really hard. Um, and I'll tell you why. And it, it's, for example, if you had one boot, so this, let's take a Hawks Ultra or Hawks, let's go Hawks Prime. Hawks Prime is our medium volume, quote unquote, 100 millimeter lasted boot. Um, we make a narrow 98 millimeter Ultra we make a wider 102 millimeter magna. So prime sits right in the middle for us. So there's going to be feet that find prime too high volume. Like me, I got a really skinny foot. I can't ski a prime. Uh, Then there's going to be feet that find it too narrow and they want to be in something wider. All three of these feet, narrow, medium, and wide, trying on this prime boot are going to cause it to flex differently. Their foot shape and how much their foot shape fills up that shell affects the stiffness of the boot. So, and you can imagine this with a, a, a very wide boot that we kind of talked about earlier. If you got a super wide, high volume boot with a really skinny foot inside of it, there's a lot of empty space. And this boot is designed with a foot that fills it up. That's why I think most most shop kids who have tried on a lot of boots always say that the wide, high-volume boots feel softer. And sometimes that's true. But you're surprised when a guy with a huge foot try a big person, like just say you're six foot six or something with a wide, huge foot, tries on these higher volume boots and it's stiff enough for him. And you're surprised by that as a shop employee. You're like, well, that's, that boot's usually soft for me, but this huge guy, it's, it's totally supportive for him. That's because his foot is filling up the boot, allowing the boot to behave as it should. And when you have a skinny foot inside a high volume boot, there's so much empty space for the boot to deform more and that's why a lot of high volume boots feel soft to people because they're, they should be in a lower volume fit. So even if you tried to standardize the flex and say, this boot should be a 120, I'm going to come back to you and say, well, what foot is trying it on? Because that affects its stiffness and that, that flex curve that would be generated by the robot, for example. And then you've just got different constructions. Even though you've got a bunch of overlap boots, everybody's overlap boot is different enough in its geometry that let's just say you, you, you define a flex pattern of 120. This is how every 120 should be. And the ski boot manufacturer has just spent a million euros on mold costs. FYI, that's how much it generally costs to bring a ski boot to life before you even start buying material to make the boot. It's about a million euros of investment. So they've just spent a lot of money on this. 
And the last thing they want to do is to have somebody tell them that 120 is not a real 120 by a small amount, for example. So if you have this standardized flex pattern of what a 120 should be, and they're just 4% below it or something, they're going to want to call it a 120. And they're probably right to call it a 120 because it's so close to that line. So it's going to be hard to just say everybody's boot should line up to this flex pattern because everybody's boots are just so different. You can just line them up on a table and just see they physically look. They have different industrial designs, and those industrial designs influence how the plastic behaves. Even it might be a small amount. Um, if you're going to say this is the hard line for a 130, if, you're, if you can't reach it, you can't call your boot a 130, that would be financially disastrous for that brand. You know, so there's going to be lots of brands that are just going to be opposed to having a standardization of of flex, um, just for the simple fact of the boots just work a little differently from brand to brand. Even if they're trying their hardest to be accurate with the flex, a Hawks Ultra 130 does feel a little different than a Prime 130 versus a Magna 130. We're trying to get those boots to line up as closely as we can, but it'll never be perfect. And then to get all the brands to feel that way, it would, in my opinion, it would cause the brands to all become the same. They'd have to align on a mold, industrial design, wall thickness, and that would just make things super stagnant in, in the evolution of boots. But even if that was doable, you would still have the problem of what kind of foot is going into that boot, and that alone will change how the boot feels. So that's why I think it's, it's ultimately, it would never truly happen. Some brands don't want it to happen because that's, you know, their whole commercial philosophy hinges on the fact that there is no standard and they can kind of play with that a little bit. And then some brands or all brands would ultimately be left with the, the variable of foot shape causing the same boot to feel different. Okay. Another topic that is kind of becoming increasingly near and dear to my heart is the concept of damping. And I think that I am increasingly using this term suspension. And one of the reasons that I like using that term is that in some ways to me, it encompasses two things, I think. One, a nice progressive flex, but also just a boot's ability to kind of, well, the shock absorption component. And so those things seem related to me for sure, but they don't seem to be the same thing, right? Yeah, definitely related and, you know, interconnected for sure. So when we talk about the ideal feels to the boot, um, we've got our progressive flex we want to have. We want to have also good rebound characteristics, not just the flex forward, but how things return to center um, to the boot. Um, it's also damping characteristics. You're totally right to use these these words, and for sure there's parallels to the mountain bike world that make perfect sense. Um, because there's a lot of 
shock absorption, a lot of damping that the boot needs to do in order to ski well. Um, you can just imagine, you know, think of the example, if the boot did not flex, how much that would suck. You know, your shins would be just be beaten up, your feet would be torn to bits, you know. So ha having no shock absorption, no flex is a really bad thing for ski boots. So the goal would be, therefore, to have a good amount of all of those things, good progressive flex, great rebound characteristics, good damping, uh, suspension, uh, all those things need to be addressed. And if they're not addressed, it's one of the things that any reviewer, uh, especially yourself would hone in on super quickly, you know, like this boots skis like crap, you know, it just doesn't feel good. Those are always the things that are at the top of our mind when we're making a boot and it became even more top of mind when we went to the pro light constructions of Hawks Ultra, Hawks Prime, and Ultra Extended, for example. Because when you go thin with the wall thickness, one, there's a stability question in play there. Because if you just go thin, you'll have no stability where you need it. So you gotta be really mindful as to where you can go thin, where you can't go thin. Um, you have to really be careful of what materials you select now and also their hardness because as we mentioned earlier the thinner we go the harder the material is and that can lead to a kind of tinny brittle feeling to the boot uh, if it's done wrong so when you're kind of playing with this kind of mathematical equation in your head of what to do what to change You've got to really look at all three of those components from material family, from the material hardness, from the wall thickness, and play with each of those variables in a way to arrive at the progressive flex, the great rebound you want to have, and the proper damping characteristics that'll be there. Um, and they're all top of mind. And they are all things where... We have been working on for the last year and a half since our first conversation, and it'll be things we're working on for the next year and a half for sure as to how to perfect that and learn from what we've done in generation one of ProLite. And as you'll see at the upcoming, what will be the next ISPO slash OR show, a new boot from us that really addresses those points and tries to solve all the problems that other brands are struggling with with making light boots that still ski well and feel well hmm. dun, dun, dun. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> given everything you've just said and that teaser you just dropped on us let's talk about the kind of we've been talking a lot about chemistry why don't we talk a little bit about physics you know generally when we're talking about a ski boot or a ski that has better or worse damping, often it seems like things that are heavier tend to fare better in this regard, which again, you've just noted, well, that's why we're excited about something that you're going to be unveiling down the road here in a bit. But what do you, what, what do you have to say about this notion of weight and damping and how, well, problems or relevant variables and factors around that? Sure. 
when you talk about like a heavy boot, that's going to mean it's thicker. That's just going to be the ultimate thing that uh, the consequence. If you go thicker, you get heavier. If you want a heavier boot, it's got to be thick. And and I'm referring to the, the wall thickness of the plastic in the shell and in the cuff. And a perfect example of that is our Redster line of, of race boots. You know, there is a reason why World Cup race is not using super thin, lightweight boots. They just, they lack the integrity. If you really wanted a 170 flex, you're just going to need to have a boot that's thick for that. Um, it also kind of opens the door. Um, racing will never use lightweight boots because also the skis and bindings are just wicked heavy. And if you, when you, these guys are so, these guys and girls are so finely calibrated that if, if the weight of the ski and the boot is a complete mismatch, their skiing would suffer, you know? So you're never going to see a racer use a lightweight boot purely for the fact that it just doesn't mesh well with the heavy ski and binding that they have. This does not mean that lightweight boots don't ski well. I would say 99% of our audience here is not a World Cup racer. So um, you kind of have to view it through the lens of who is using the boot and what are their needs at the end of the day. For most all-mountain resort skiers, having a boot that's 25% lighter but still yielding a, a 130 flex with good progressive flex, good damping, is 100% sufficient for their needs, like their skiing needs. Whereas the needs of Marcel and Michaela are just light years different. So they're going to need a boot that's light years different. Um, so on one aspect, that's why these two boots will always exist for us. Um, a heavier Redster, for example, and a lighter weight Hawks boot, just because the, the end user's needs are different. Um, with that said, if you came from the racing background, so a lot of people who today are not World Cup racers, but they, they raced in high school or college, and they just like that feel to a boot, that's a legitimate thing, you know? And that's also why we still make uh, Redster Club Sport. So that's our, that's our commercially lasted race boot. It's a 96 millimeter boot. It's way more anatomically shaped. There's more four foot space than the 92 millimeter, uh, Redster World Cup. You know, if you, unless you just love spending time with your boot fitter and you want to grind for 10 hours, the you know, World Cup is your deal. Um, but if you don't want to do that, the club sport is coming out of the same mold series, but with a different internal last that just has kind of the boot fitting kind of pre-done. And if, if having, if, if weight's not important to you, if you don't care how heavy your boot is or how light your boot is, but you want a low volume fit that has a super high level of damping characteristics and progressive flex, it's Redster Club Sport. And that's why that boot still exists in our range, you know. Um, and that's going to appeal to a certain segment of people, for sure. You know, and we will never go away from that because there's just people who whose needs and their wants are more aligned with that product versus something like a Hawks Ultra, you know. Um, so if on your checklist 
you want it to have the ultimate in damping shock absorption progressive flex, you should probably go Redster. Um, at the sacrifice of having a super heavy boot or the consequence of having a super heavy boot, you know, um, and it'll be, it'll be very noticeable. You know, it's almost a, a 700 gram difference, I think, between a Redster World Cup and a, a Hawks Ultra. What about the Redster Club Sport versus either of the boots you just named? Oh uh, yeah, Red, I mean, Redster World Cup is, uh, is thicker and heavier, but it's like 100 grams maximum. It's probably less, to be honest. Sorry, it's 100 grams lighter than a Redster World Cup? I'd have to double check that, but off the top of my head, it's, it's around that. Maybe a little less, yeah. Because they're using the same mold series, it's just the internal last that's different. A lot of the general wall thickness is very similar, and the cuff between World Cup and Club Sport is identical from a thickness. So you're only talking about just the shell, the buckles, the power strap, the cuff, the liner will, will be relatively the same weight between World Cup and Club Sport. Just the lower shell is a little bit lighter with Club Sport. So to circle back, I would say you know if you came from the race background and weight and traction is also uh, not important to you because Redster boots are what I would call like a, it's a solid sole. The sole is part of the chassis of the boot. There's no replaceable grip pad to it um, kind of thing. You can put lifters on and that can be a replaceable thing that when it wears out, you can put a new lifter on. But it's not going to get you traction. So if you're also if you're scrambling on rocks and you're boot packing somewhere, you can use a Redster. You just got to be very mindful of every step you take and make sure it's solid. <laughs> so there's some other reasons why Ultra or Prime or Magna or Extended, for example, um, would be a, a, a better free ride option. Um, but there's for sure lots of free riders that are in race boots and you, you see it kind of often. I want to let you get going. It is, we have been talking for a very long time <laughs> and it is very late uh, in your neck of the woods. So just to wrap up with a final question, and this is, this has really been remarkable. I think, I think a lot of, a lot of us uh, are really going to benefit and will certainly appreciate the level of detail you've been willing to lay out here uh, on a lot of these issues where I, I think a lot of us have maybe know quite a bit on some of these fronts and a whole lot less on others. And so I think this is a, this has been quite illuminating. Uh, you've avoided the, uh, the horrors of the rabbit hole. And I think that you talked about in part one of our we conversation, got close. we got, I think we did, you, you got us pretty close. Um, <laughs> but so just to kind of wrap, I mean, if you were to say something about kind of a synopsis on where the kind of collective head is at among you and your squad at Atomic and Bootland, either trends you're noticing or just things that you are kind of work, working on and pretty preoccupied with? Any kind of final statements there? Sure. There's, yeah, two parts that I think Atomic is, at least we've stuck our flag in the ground, we're kind of known for, is our success in race and our kind of leading the way and making light boots that ski well kind of thing. And I think you'll see us innovate 
and be true to the end user's needs and creating solutions for those needs uh, in both race and in the all-mountain kind of how to make light boots ski awesome kind of world. And, um, you know, one of the fun facts I just got reminded of by our race department is in the last 24 years, Atomic has won the World Cup overall, the men's World Cup overall, 22 times. And especially with Marcel and Michaela, um, we're just racking up the wins and the globes the last few years. Um, there's a lot of pressure to make sure we have the latest and greatest in race. And it's such part of our DNA and our skiing heritage um, that you're going to be seeing for sure evolutions happen on uh, race boots and race skis coming coming to the forefront in the next couple years, um, as well as how to make light boots ski even better than they do now. It's going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Well, hey, man, listen, thanks again for this. Fun to talk, and I'm, I'm already starting to uh, formulate a, a, a future conversation that maybe we'll have a little bit down the road. But, um, yeah, man, appreciate this. And, uh, yeah, those who stuck through part one <laughs> and two, I think are going to be a whole lot more informed about the things we're stuffing our feet into when, when we get to go skiing. Totally. It's been a pleasure. It's been super fun. Well, thanks, man. I'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks, Jonathan. Cheers. All right. Take care. That's it for this edition of Gear 30. Thanks to Matt Manzer for the conversation. And feel free to leave any questions for Matt in the show notes to this episode or the last one. Or you can leave any mailbag questions about boots that you would like us to address in our upcoming part three conversation. Leave those in the show notes to this episode. Or you can email me at jonathan.ellsworth at blisterreview.com. Just be sure to put Gear 30 Ski Boot questions in the subject title so it doesn't get lost. And don't forget to go check out our new bike podcast, Bikes and Big Ideas, and especially our episode with Gorilla Gravity, who is building new wave carbon bikes right here in the USA in downtown Denver. Thanks, everybody. Please take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.